and thanks for joining us today on the Chicago Murderland Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Northside Katie. And I'm Southwestside Jen. We chill and thrill you with tales of murder in the windy city of Chicago and Chicago's outer limits. Yes, folks, it will be creepy, disturbing, gritty, sometimes gory, and always interesting. Always. Chicago is a city of neighborhoods and immigrants, of great wealth and bitter poverty. Chicago is also a city of industry, transportation, architecture, culture, and high finance. And you know what else? Deep Dish Pizza 2, which strangely is not one of our faves. Get out! (laughs) Just get it away from me. Just too much cheese. Both of us are lifelong or almost lifelong Chicagoans, and between the two of us, we want to share our amazing city with you. Of course, that means Chicago's murderous and dark side. We all know about killers like John Wayne Gacy and Richard Speck, but we want to tell you the fascinating and tragic stories of murder in Chicago that aren't as well known. You'll get to know the murder victims and the neighborhoods where they lived, and where they were murdered. We walked the streets and sidewalks the victims and their killers walked. The city we love, the city of big shoulders. Papá trabajaba cuando vivía en Chicago. Siempre policía el fuego, siempre al lado de la ley. This is Chicago Murderland. Una noche de verano en la tierra del dólar fue lo que todo Chicago vio. Déjenme explicarles que cuando el señor Alcapón de la ciudad se bañó. So now, if you're quite ready, let us begin. We are recording. Awesome, 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 awesome. I was talking to somebody about my friend Marlene Schneider recently. Oh yeah, Marlene. Marlene Schneider. She wore a lot of gold lame, and she had nail polish. A lot of nail polish, and she liked her coffee hot and black. Waitress, what's your name, sweetheart? Come over here. What's your name? Listen, Joni, bring over that hot pot of coffee. I like it black, only don't bring me any sugar. Do you have sweet and low in those pink packets? Thank you, darling. You know, for a lifelong Chicagoan, that is a a wonderful New York accent. Do you think so? Well, it's not perfect, but it's pretty damn good. You know, she was from Skokie, so maybe she had people. I'm 3% Ashkenazi, I'll have you know. Really? Yes. Well, shalom. <laughs> and slancha. And, you know, whatever. I am having some 
lower intestinal issues right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> not to be sharing too much information. We're going right into very it. Very highly personal level, but Katie is not not at her best today. <laughs> it's a gray day outside and a gray day inside too. <laughs> I was, I I was, when you called me and I tried to say, oh man, I don't want to, even though I was bitching about this. Um, and I just wasn't feeling like doing this today. And my stomach is like, what the hell have you been doing to me? And so I thought about it for the last couple of days. I haven't been mean to myself. Hmm. I haven't been, I, I have a tendency to like sugar a little bit too much. And so sometimes that, and uh, also, since you were all asking about this. <laughs> no, they weren't. <laughs> also uh, dairy, you know. So I didn't do a lot Cow of that. juice. I know. Cow pus. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm having gastrointestinal problems now. <laughs> Just because I came over here. Jesus. On with the show, Graham. On okay. with the showgram. Chicago is the city of neighborhoods, and this episode features Chicago Heights, which is a suburb located about 30 miles south of downtown Chicago, and the vicious, senseless murder of Australia Landingham, fondly referred to as Aunt Bucci by those who loved her and knew her best. In the name of the Father. Sunday, an unseasonably hot and humid late spring morning, and three members of the Landingham family sat together at the gleamingly clean table after having had breakfast. They were joyful with anticipation and chatted excitedly, making plans for quite a significant upcoming event. Nearly a holiday in this family, the 50th wedding anniversary celebration for husband and wife, Walter and Australia Landingham. Even though record heat temperatures were expected that day, their grown daughter, Crystal, and her aging father planned to go shopping for items to decorate for the social gathering. They wanted to ensure they had everything needed for the upcoming celebration. Crystal's beloved 82-year-old mother, Australia, a respected and loved elder in the community, would remain home to tidy up the neat and well-kept Chicago Heights house. Australia, also lovingly referred to as Aunt Bucci, didn't know a stranger. Born and raised in The Heights, she was proud of her accomplishments, one of them being this house, which she worked hard to take care of over the years and where family and friends felt at home. But come mid-afternoon, as father and daughter returned with bags of glittery golden wedding anniversary favors and treats, they could never have anticipated the shocking horror awaiting them as they entered their sweet little home on Halstead Street in Chicago Heights. Dingham came back from running errands with her father Sunday afternoon to find her mother dead at the bottom of the basement stairs. 82-year-old Australia Landingham was murdered. I found her. I wish I hadn't found her. I'm messed up in here. Like, I'm traumatized. I can't sleep. This is episode two, Aunt Bucci's anniversary. 
We are here to be storytellers, not experts. And even though one of us is a mental health professional. And the other one is nuts. That's a clinical term. We are just expressing our own opinions on this podcast. It may not be suitable for younger or more sensitive listeners. We got some swears. A lot. I'm 1470, in case you just joined us, this is WMPP 1470 with studios in East Chicago Heights, Illinois. This is the only station with a Mr. Bridgewater. Chicago Heights is in Cook County, about eight miles southwest of Hammond, Indiana. And as I mentioned, about 30 miles south of Chicago, hence the Chicago landiness of our beloved Chicago Murderland podcast. I like to tease my pals from the Chicago Heights burb that this is technically more Indianaville than Chicagoland. Yeah. Yeah, right? That's fair. I digress. Almost. A little bit. Chicago Heights was settled in 1833 by the Whites. Yes, that's like right. Mr. and Mrs. White or? But, no. Oh, the people that are white? By the, the white whites. Uh, it doesn't say whether they're a white family. I think it's white people. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, oh, really? Okay. The whites. The whites. Absalon Wells. Absalon mm. Wells. Absalon Wells was the first European settler of the area. Pastor Jeff of Pastor Jeff's blog, Google it, Mm. alleges that old Absalon was actually a squatter on the land, which was originally called Thorn Creek. Apparently, the thrifty Absalon married a Potawatomi woman and chose exile with her people rather than permanent settlement. There's no more information on his fate, but there is an historic marker to mark the spot where old Absalon built a log cabin. In 1836, the first school of the area was established. The first railroad entered Thorn Grove in 1853. The area was renamed Chicago Heights in 1892 and was incorporated as a village. It was reincorporated in 1900 as a city. How can it be a suburb and a city? Well, a, it, a suburb is really, it's a geographical designation. It's not a legal de- designation. It's 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 a kind of a just its relationship to Chicago. It doesn't really mean anything. Nothing is actually technically a suburb. It's either a village, a town, a township, a city. All right. This is how Don't people, I sound smart right now? No, you sound like you're trying to justify a suburb when the fact of the matter is you're either from Chicago or you're not. No, and, I'm just trying to explain the difference between the the what what the word suburb really refers to. Oh, I know what you're doing. You're trying to justify <laughs> and rationalize what wow. suburbs are. Tough crowd today it here. Is, it is a tough crowd. Yeah, that's why, because, you know, when we when we talk about coming from Chicago, this is where you'll hear Jen and I argue. You're either from Chicago or you're not from Chicago. Well, an amen and amen to that. I'm from the lovely suburb of Palos Park, I don't consider myself from Chicago. I now live in Chicago so that I can say I am, I live in Chicago. There you go. So actually, I think we 
agree, and I won't have to throw the stress ball at you. It was early in the 1890s, a group of Chicago developers led by Charles Wacker. Of Wacker Drive. Determined to establish Chicago Heights as an outer ring industrial suburb. Mm. They successfully recruited large-scale heavy industries such as Inland Steel and built the impressive Hotel Victoria, which was designed by Louis Sullivan. Hey. Right? Louis Sullivan was an influential American architect. He was known as Chicago's father of the skyscrapers. His attention to detail and use of ornamentation on emerging tall buildings of the late 19th century made him one of the most influential architects of the modernist period. The city gained some notoriety as a stomping ground for top bootleggers during the Prohibition era and, because of its industrial base, was hit hard by the Great Depression in the 1930s. I bet. Chicago Heights factories worked around the clock in the 1940s to produce steel, chemical, and war material of every sort. World War II set the stage for a golden era that saw residential expansion to the north and west, prosperity for downtown retailers, and in the 1950s, the coming of a new Ford stamping plant that provided employment for thousands. The diverse population of Chicago Heights peaked at about 41,000 in 1970 and then declined to about 33,000 in the year 2000, with the percentage of African-American and Hispanic minorities on the rise. The prosperity of the late 90s brought stabilization of the industrial base, a movement for renewal of the old east side and hills neighborhoods, a preservation movement, and continued challenges in the commercial sector. Interesting factoid, John Stossel, who's really John Frank Stossel, born March 6, 1947, is an American libertarian television presenter, author, consumer journalist, and pundit. That's a lot of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) He's known for his career as a host on ABC News, Fox Business Network, and Reason TV. He was born in Chicago Heights. How about that? Johnny Stossel. He's got a mustache. He does. His mustache has got a life of its own. I grew up outside Chicago and spent my weekends there. I didn't pay attention to politics or government then, but my father told me Chicago's a city that works. Maybe he was right. I don't know. Aunt Bucci moving around her kitchen on that morning, wearing her colorful housecoat and comfortable house shoes, hair in a scarf, smiling to herself as she shuffles over to the counter where she spies a few crumbs Walter missed when he was bringing dishes to the sink. She was thinking about the upcoming celebration, the full house of family, including blood relatives, those formally adopted, and those who Australia claimed over the years. I visualize her going to the bedroom door and unlocking it with the key she kept on her person at all times and entering the room 
where she's grateful to see her comfortable bed and the sharp, stylish outfit she had laid out hours before after praying silently through the arthritic pains while making the bed. Oh, how she loves her family. She thinks of her siblings now and becomes a little bit emotional, sitting on the edge of the bed as she recalls how her younger sisters had come to view her as a mother figure during all those long phone calls, listening lovingly to their worries and troubles. I can see her in my mind's eye as she dabs a bit of perfume, one that is her scent. Maybe it's something vintage from the 70s like Taboo, or perhaps she's a white shoulders gal. Anyone who ever hugged Aunt Bucci would know that lovely fragrance. Her smile simply could not be ignored. It was the smile of a faithful, contented woman who loved fiercely and never ran out of chances for people around her to do better. As Australia is finishing up getting dressed, she puts a touch of lipstick on and looks at the mirror at her long life. It was a good life, too. She sees herself as a girl, biggest sister, a mama, and grandma, and the ultimate weapon, Aunt Bucci. God is good all the time, I imagine, she says, as she checks herself one final time in the mirror. Her brows knit a little bit when she thinks she hears someone calling outside, but she dismisses it. Out back, she thinks. That tar on top of the shed in the yard needs repair. She can call on her sister's friend from church to see if that grandson of hers, who had been in some trouble, would like to make a few dollars. She could also share the word with him in a special way, that special way only Aunt Bucci knew how to do. She knows she's a loving force to be reckoned with and routinely locks the bedroom door behind her, patting the pocket where she replaces the key in her garment. Her bedroom door is always locked. That's how she rolls. At that moment, she thinks she hears a familiar male voice calling to her. She ambles towards the front door, feeling better now. Old arthritis is starting to subside in her hips and back. Whew, she thought. It's blazing hot out there and very sunny. She hears the familiar song of the sparrows and her beautiful trees through the open window in the front of the house. She's not sure who's at the door, but she's thinking she knows. This stops her for a minute. Today is not a day for anything but praise. There's a bit of leftover casserole from breakfast in the refrigerator and sliced strawberries. Oh, heck, she wondered. Did she remind Walter to pick up the garlic powder for the extra pan of homemade lasagna the family had requested for the big day? She pursed her lips, thinking. Lost in thought, she hears a knock. He says, It's real hot out here, Aunt Bucci. She says a little prayer and unconsciously checks the window one more time as she opens the front door with a smile for the man whose identity remained indistinguishable due to the specter of light shining from above and behind him. He shifts his arms, gives her an obligatory hug, then uses an excuse for the bathroom to rush past her. He moves so fast past her she almost lost her balance. Of course, that man is always too quick and rarely looked her in the eye anyhow. She gave him a piece of straight talk about how to respect her in her house. Wait until he had a bite to eat, though. That's the right way to be with family, she thought. Once he finished in the bathroom, she offered a plate of food, and they sat together at the family table. 
They share friendly chat while he finishes up the meal. I imagine that Bucci asked him to please take out the garbage. He smiles brightly at her. Sure. While rinsing his dish, she nods in approval. He grabs the full, tall, white kitchen garbage bag and in tow leaves out the side door. As he's leaving, he squeezes Aunt Gucci's shoulder gently. Moments later, the side door squeaks open, startles Australia, who had been daydreaming. She looks at him. Something was off. He looked crazed. Her fight-or-flight instinct instantly was at attention. The hair on the back of her neck stood up, and he advanced toward her. At 5.15 p.m., Crystal Landingham made a frantic 911 call to the Chicago Heights Police Department. She pleaded with the dispatcher to quickly get an ambulance to their house on the 2300 block of South Halstead. It looked like her mother had fallen down the stairs to the basement, and she seemed injured and unconscious. When police and paramedics arrived on the scene, they found Australia unresponsive and lying in a pool of blood at the bottom of the basement stairs. A concrete brick covered in blood was found near her and looked very out of place in the fully finished basement. First responders examined her and pronounced her dead on the scene. Later, her body was taken to the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office, where they found multiple blunt force trauma injuries to her head and face. It appeared that she'd been badly beaten. Australia had definitely not fallen down the stairs and there were no signs of forced entry. Somebody she may have known had literally beaten her to death. This was a homicide. Investigators say they found blood evidence. Australia Landingham's body was found in her home Sunday night. The family of Australia Landingham continued to struggle with her vicious murder. She didn't deserve what happened to her. Today, she would have celebrated her 50th wedding anniversary. Now new at five, we are learning more about an 82-year-old woman who was killed inside her home just days before her 50th wedding anniversary. South Suburban Major Crimes Task Force is investigating this crime, a crime in which relatives tell us there was no fourth century and the suspect was inside and locked the doors and windows from the inside. And it seemed that the suspect was familiar with the layout of the home. The family and neighbors immediately reacted with horror and sadness. At least 200 people gathered outside the family home to collectively grieve the horrific murder and loss. I've been knowing for a long time and I come out, I come to the window, I saw the police cars. And then I come out on the porch, I saw everybody down there. I think somebody played on her kindness of her weakness and, and they, they got her. My sister was a good-hearted person. 
she was really sweet, you know, and the way they took her life and the way they did her, you know, it just, we haven't got over it yet. I can't even put it into words, like it's that bad. Like how could you just bring yourself to do something like that? I mean, what was the reason? She was 82 years old. How would you do something like this, crush her skull like they did and knock her teeth out of her mouth? Like how could you, any human, how could you do this to somebody? You got to be real sick in the head to do that to somebody. An elderly person at that. A helpless person at that. She could barely walk sometimes. Something like this here happened to her, as good as she was to everybody. It's a shame. It's a low down dirty shame. Walter and Crystal had been out of the house that Sunday afternoon. When they returned, they noticed all the windows and doors were closed and locked, even though they had been left open when they left. They reported to the police that most everything in the house looked in order, except for the television that had been left on with the volume set quite high. But Australian Walter's bedroom door, usually closed and locked, was now unlocked and open. The bedroom was ransacked. Also, the garbage had been taken out, which Australia rarely ever did. She also rarely went down to the basement, as she had a hard time getting up and down the stairs. And Crystal remembered that the garbage was there when they left. Investigators quickly utilized cameras in the area. One camera recorded a man driving back and forth in front of Australia's home that day in a white GMC Acadia. The man appeared tall and to be African-American. The same man was seen walking in the direction of Australia's house, and then coming back after a brief time carrying a dark colored bag. Further surveillance video from an area business showed a white GMC Acadia in the parking lot in the early evening of May 27th, and the tall black man dumping the blue bag in a trash can. Investigators later searched over 12 tons of garbage to find the dark blue bag, which ended up being a simple pillowcase. Another video helped establish the timeline of the crime and the suspected murderer. Crystal and Walter were seen in her Buick, driving away from the neighborhood at approximately 2.20 p.m. Then, at approximately 2.45 p.m., the white GMC Acadia is seen on the same street, but driving toward Australia's house. That same car is seen on the video, leaving the area again at 3.15 p.m. What happened? What was the motive? What does the crime scene tell us? The crime scene tells us it's possible that this was someone that Australia knew, or at least felt comfortable opening the door to. There were no signs of forced entry on either the front door, the side door, or any of the windows. This was clearly a violent murder. But the killing of Australia may not have been the primary motive for this crime. Burglary may have been the primary motive, as the house was burglarized. The murderer may have been spontaneous and unplanned as a result of Australia possibly becoming an obstacle to the burglary, she might have yelled and screamed, tried to call police, or tried to physically confront the intruder. And burglary is a crime best done when a house is unoccupied. A burglar 
would have to run away, usually if they entered a home and found someone there. Also, many burglaries and other property crimes are drug-related. Heroin, for example, can cost an addict up to 100 to 300 per day, and the effects of heroin withdrawal can be severe and terrifying. One former heroin user describes his withdrawal as starting with panic at knowing that they're running out of heroin and don't have a way to get more, followed by what feels like a flu, but 10 times worse. point, I want to introduce a friend who's been kind enough to come and join us for our episode on Australia Landingham. And he has some experience with both um, drugs and with crime. The person who's been accused of this crime had a long history of heroin use, which is often associated with criminality because of the money that it costs the user. I'd love to hear whatever you'd like to share, kind of an overview of your story. I am an addict. I'm a human being. I grew up in in Detroit. At 16, I left home and, uh, you know, in in juvenile once, and then I committed a crime. Went to jail. I stole a truck. Theft and uh, drugs went hand in hand from the time I was uh, first started using 12 years old with, you know, marijuana and was the first uh aside you know there was alcohol was always there but um i always enjoyed drugs crime really started taking off you know it was a 70 and 75 i hooked up with a, a girl sir and she was using intravenous uh speed and um and it was legal at that time uh dizoxin. and you know, other kids, I recall this in school, other kids would draw, you know, pot leaves on their desks. And I remember drawing a syringe with a big bubble of coming out of it and it said heroin in it. And I was a pretty good illustrator. It was realistic. And I'd never even seen a syringe before. At 17, you know, I was, I was shooting speed and we were in the heart of it. I became an IV drug user. And that was at the time uh, crack was out and our downstairs neighbor turned us on to it. And that's when it just got nuts. This, it turned to powder cocaine because you couldn't really get crack then. And that was just like, you know, your paycheck was, you know, like eight, eight shots and you're, you worked all week for uh, a hole in your arm. But I, my story is I, I stole from everybody around me and I stole from my grandmother. I went to jail for robbing my grandmother. I never crossed that line where I thought about hurting her, but I, I grew resentful of her because I, because she's letting me stay with her. She let me stay with her at three points in my life. And every time I stole from her, I went, you know, I went to jail twice for it. She was just the closest one. She was there. But she was a, a darling in when I wasn't on drugs at periods of my life, I would go shovel her walk and refuse to accept money. I would go check on her, add drugs and stir and let that sit and then, you know, get me into a point where I'm desperate over a period of time. Because usually I would sell all my belongings or sell the most valuable ones and then start stealing. What was driving this? How do these people 
kind of get to these horrible acts. Call it seeing red anger and like losing control in my head. Like when I was violent and I broke in and I stole a Colt 45 and I had it in my backpack and I was walking around with a pistol for probably nine days till I got caught. What the hell did I need a pistol for at 16? But I had one. I remember just being really resentful. The first time I stole a substantial amount, I remember it was some silver coins. What could cause a, a hair, an IV heroin user to commit such a crime, in your opinion? What do you think? Why? He could have been sick. You just have this spur of the moment. I Like with my grandmother, I got a little resentful. I read her will. And um, I knew there was like a large amount somewhere hidden very well. He could have been he could have been high, like just enough to maintenance high because dope sick, man. You're like if, if you're worse than me, you're cramped up. They call it kicking because you're laying up in a cramp and as a, your legs are involuntary twitching. But I, I saw guys in jail like old, old. I saw an old dope fiend like dry heaved and retched for days. I, I laid in the, in Oakland County Jail. I didn't crawl, and I, I said out loud, I would sell my soul for a pack of dope. I would smoke crack, you know, to keep from overdosing. The problem with the harder drugs that work very well, <laughs> the massive effects, they wear off. The money, the money, you can't keep that level. And then at some point, it's just, uh, you just got to be not sick. So there's been incidences when I've lost control of my faculties when I'm like, I was just running on physical adrenaline. I can understand. I think I've got that protector gene where I just couldn't harm my grandma. Yeah, I talk her out of 20 bucks because I'm sick for dope. You know what I mean? Or while she's in the bathroom, like, go steal her wedding ring. There's the predator gene and the protector gene. There's just that subconscious line. I mean, what I have in me is not like what that person has in him. I just couldn't. I could not hurt her. I did run in and grab 40 bucks out of her purse and take off. Yeah, you know, and I think what you're kind of describing is like, even in that world where people do terrible things, there's lines where some people will go over those lines and some people won't. And in this case, you know, we have to keep on calling him the alleged murderer because he hasn't he hasn't gone to trial yet. He's still in Cook County Jail. You know, the victim, Australia, was an 82-year-old vulnerable person. She was someone who would give out of her pocket. She would always kind of help out family members, even when she knew they were screw-ups, you know, or even if she knew they were doing drugs, she would help them out. She was a generous, open-hearted, kind of, it's my job to take care of everybody, and kind of a soft touch. If it was this person, the capacity for violence that this person would show coupled with a drug habit could cause someone to do these, do a horrendous act like beating their mother-in-law and their 82-year-old frail, vulnerable mother-in-law or some other family member say, to beating them to death, to just, like you said, like seeing red, losing your, you know, any sense of humanity. And there could have been some, some class issues. I've had class issues where, um, you know, I had, I have some cousins that are real upright and, you know, they're named in my grandmother's will and I was not. 
And, you know, and uh, there could have been that or it, or it could have been the inheritance. I can't speak for that, but it's, we had a, we had a murder like that here. It was a handyman and they lived in a motel and it was an older lady and uh, the couple had, she had doing, done inside work. He ended up going there and stabbed her to death. And it came out in court that she called him, well, you're a dirty bird. And uh, he threw the knife out in the median and went back to the hotel and used drugs. Somebody who kills an 82-year-old frail woman, how might they be treated in jail or would it not matter? Uh, well, uh, my experience is I've never been to prison. I got, I, I've done three and a half years behind bars, but all in jails. I've never been around somebody for murdering an old woman, but, you know, even drug dealers got grandmas. And if the woman has any relatives that are also, or people that know of her or knew her on the streets and uh, it gets national renown, cause you can watch the news in prison. You know what I mean? But there's a period between uh, where you go from jail to quarantine and then you get sent to your prison. Not a lot of love, not a lot of love. And um, he, put, he won't be looked on favorably. I guess, and and hopefully, hopefully in the courtroom, you know, at sentencing, there will be an impact statement. And if, the, and I'm not giving advice, but if there's an impact statement where people of the community get up and, and because they get to have their say, it'll get on the news and people will see that. Say, I hope, I hope what gets done to you, what you did to my, my Nana, my grandma, whatever, uh, Australia, since I know her name, what you did to Australia gets done to you, but I hope it lasts longer. So you get to feel it. Um, you know, you know, if that was my grandmother, I would go in on sentencing day and I'd say, Oh, you guys chained up next to, her. uh, everywhere he goes, you tell everybody that he killed a little old lady. And, um, you know, you know, and in the end for me, I mean, was in the, under the same roof, caring for my grandmother the night she died. I'd put her compression socks on every day. I'd feed her. I'd check on her. I read to her from her book of faith. And I'd like to think I made an amend- I made my amends. We want to thank you for being part of our podcast and supporting us this way. It's, it means a lot to us. Oh, you're welcome. Um, I'm glad I could share what I did. And, and I can't understand it, but I can conceive it. Thank you and uh, bona fortuna. If the burglar had entered the home not realizing that Estrella was there, why would they have remained there? Why wouldn't they have run away? Why would they have had a brick brought in from the outside? Why would they have closed the windows? One possible motive could have been revenge. Did Estrella have enemies? Who may have had ill will toward her? That motive does seem unlikely. Australia was someone who was beloved in the family, her church, and her community. Nobody who was interviewed by the press had anything bad to say about her or indicated that she might have enemies. She also was not known to have any obvious vices, such as gambling or drugs or anything that would have put her into high-risk situations. Another motive could be that someone entered Australia's home with the intent of committing murder. The person who beat her would have had to be physically strong, emotionally callous, and yet full of rage. 
The murderer was also physically close to Australia, feeling the impact of the blows that he was inflicting. This person may have enjoyed the violence of his crime. What would make you do this to her? Why? An answer the family knows they may never have as they remember the matriarch of their family as a God-fearing woman who was generous and loving. My sister, she wasn't only a sister to me. She was like a mother to me. Coincidentally, Australia had recently purchased a GMC Acadia for her biological daughter and her daughter's husband, Charles Williams. And it just so happened that Charles Williams had borrowed it that day. In the midst of processing the crime scene and talking to witnesses, Charles Williams was recorded on body cam footage by the police pulling up in a white 2010 GMC Acadia. Charles told police he had not been inside the house in about a month when he'd come over to help Australia after her basement had flooded. He then remembered that he had gone there a week later to cut her grass, but hadn't been there since. He admitted that he'd had a drug problem and had stolen from Australia in the past. However, Charles said he was better and that Australia had forgiven him. The police noticed that the man seen in the videos was wearing the same clothes and driving the same car as Charles Williams was when he was recorded on that body cam video. Williams was then put under surveillance. Police observed him retrieving items from the trunk area of the Acadia and placing them in plastic bags. Police moved in and placed Charles in custody. A search of his house and car was conducted. A box for a pair of Jordan Series 11 athletic shoes was located. A shoe print from a Jordan Series 11 shoe was found at the crime scene in Australia's blood. A Riverdale man is charged today in the beating death of his mother-in-law. Australia Landingham's body was found in her home Sunday night. The family of Australia Landingham leaves court this afternoon, relieved after a judge denies bond for the son-in-law accused of killing her. He doesn't deserve to walk on the land that we walk on. She didn't deserve what happened to her. Is accused of brutally beating to death the 82-year-old mother-in-law in her Chicago Heights home. Williams, who has a past conviction for attempted murder and home invasion in 1996 and is currently on probation for retail theft charge, now faces first-degree murder charges for the weekend slaying. Relatives say it's possible Williams committed the murder while trying to rob Landingham of cash she had stashed in the house. Today, she would have celebrated her 50th wedding anniversary. Charles Williams is currently being held in Cook County Jail on the charge of first-degree murder of Australia Landingham. His case is still being adjudicated. When he was arrested, he refused to answer questions and immediately asked for a lawyer. He has not answered any questions to this day. And he is, of course, 
innocent until proven guilty. So this is the point in our podcast when we ask someone who lives in the neighborhood, whether it be a Chicago neighborhood or an outlying suburb, to talk about what's special about their neighborhood. So today we're welcoming Jessica to talk about Chicago Heights and a place that's very special to her and delicious as well. So welcome, Jessica. Hello, hello. You're going to talk to us about a fabulous ice cream slash Italian ice place. Yum. Tell me about it and tell me, do you remember the first time you ever went there or what made you go there? Well, I don't remember the first time I went there. I, it's like I've always went there. You know, it's like <laughs> everybody in the neighborhood knows about it. And they started off as a very small little joint, like how you see the Tasty Freeze, but this is Zarlingo's. And it was just a walk-up place. You had to park your car and, and walk up and uh, you'd order and then you'd sit and they'd play 50s and 60s music and they had little umbrella tables that you could sit at. And usually in the summertime, it is packed with people lined out to the street. If you were to go there a couple of years ago, uh, you would be waiting in line on a hot summer night for at least 45 minutes to an hour just to get this Italian ice or ice cream or gelato or whatever you were going to get there. Oh my God. Wow. Okay. So it's called Zendingo's. What's it called? Zarlingo's. <laughs> Both. <laughs> Why? Why Zarlingo's? Is that a family? Yes. Yeah. It's a last name. Uh, famous last name out here in the Heights. Uh, they, I believe they own more than just the ice cream place. I think they, um, you know, they're, I think they own other businesses as well. And during the pandemic, uh, what they did is they bought out the lot next to them, which used to be an, a gas station, and there's been nothing there on this lot. And it's Kitty Corner from Marion High School. And <clears throat> they leveled it out and they built this enormous building next to it. And so we all thought, oh, well, this is great. Now we'll get to go in and sit down and have our ice cream. But right. no, that is not, I don't believe that's what that's for. I believe it is where they make their ice cream. They have all these freezers you can see on the outside. Wow. Um, yeah. So, so they're busy making their own ice cream in this place. And so I think they're going to get to the place of distributing more and more into other um, local grocery stores. I'm looking at their website and it's under construction, likely because they're, they must be changing the menu frequently, but it's, it's enormous. There's so many different flavors. Well, they have every kind of flavor you can think of when it comes to Italian ice. They also have quite a bit of different flavors for gelato as well. And I know like for my mother, for instance, um, she wants anything that's coffee related. So if it's like uh, coffee mocha, um, coffee chocolate chip, you know, they'll have that in gelato. Used to be the Italian ice was all cherry, um, lemon. Jalapeno lime Italian ice. I know. What? Right? Yum. <laughs> I know. <laughs> You know, it's crazy. I mean, anything you can think of, like every kind of fruit on the planet, they have turned it into Italian ice, and it's amazing. You got to understand, when this household hears Zarlingo's, 
money starts flying. Okay? <laughs> That's a good point. Because why? Because they don't accept uh, Visa and, you know, no credit cards. It's just straight up cash. So yeah. it's why everybody's got a little spare a uh, couple dollars on them to like throw into the bucket for Zarlingos because <laughs> <laughs> the Zarlingos yeah. piggy banks. If you're interested in uh, finding out more about La Zarlingos Italian Ice, I'm going to link the website, phone number, etc., in our show notes. And then just a couple of things I'll say that people, I mean, if you go to Yelp and look at them, they are just like slamming. People are loving all the flavors. I mean, I want jalapeno pineapple. That sounds super weird, but it sounds also delicious. <laughs> Jessica, I want to thank you so much for recommending a fabulous place to go. I know that you love your neighborhood, The Heights, and uh, I love it too, most especially because you're there. Thanks for being a guest on our show today. Oh, you're welcome, Katie. Anytime. Just a little addendum here to the Zarlengo's payment information. When you visit this delicious place located in Chicago Heights, a.k.a. The Heights, you can now pay with a credit or debit card. Or you can use Google Pay or your iPhone. You can tap it. You can swipe it. You can ding-a-ling-a-ling it. Go enjoy some delicious Zarlengo's today. You know, Jen, sitting here behind Ambucci's house, looking at the destruction, the fire, looking at the shed where Ray, I think that's what Ezekiel said, his name was Raymond, who Ambucci took a shine to, stayed. I'm thinking about what a good human being she was, what a wonderful person. I wish, you know, I didn't have a grandparent. All of my grandparents were deceased when I was born, but my oh my, I bet you she was just an amazing, remarkable human being to be around, filled with love and light. And I can feel that here, thinking about her. And my heart is heavy because nobody deserves what she got. And I just want to send her spirit and her family a lot of love there's no going around feeling what one feels when they're here. Love you, Ampucci. Oh, there was a woman in the Bible day. She had been sick, sick for so long. But she heard Jesus was passing by. So she joined the gathering throng And while she was pushing her way through Someone asked her, what are you trying to do? She said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment I know I will be
at this house, this crumbling house that's been gutted down to the studs inside. We can see there's windows missing. There's windows boarded up. And there's not one shred of evidence that there was a happy family here at one point. And that one act of selfish destruction, allegedly on the part of Charles Williams, her son-in-law, destroyed everything. The house had a fire just a few, I think, weeks or months following her murder. Crystal and Ezekiel were absolutely traumatized by what happened in this house and only stayed here for maybe a few weeks after her murder. Um, And then the house mysteriously caught fire. And that was in 2018, I believe, right? So it's 2023, and it's a hulking, decaying house that where there's nobody here. There's no one here. There's no love here. There's no warmth. There's no Sunday dinners here anymore. There's no Aunt Bucci. Rest in peace, Australia. My sweet Jen, you may be asking yourself at this moment, where would one find the Chicago Murderland podcast? You know, I don't know how you knew that, Katie, but I am asking (laughs) myself that right now. Let me hear you ask yourself. I'm asking myself, self, where in the world can we find Chicago Murderland podcast? You've got questions and I got answers. You can find us at our website, which is chicagomurderlandpod.com. You can also find us on Facebook by searching Chicago Murderland Podcast 
Or if you want to, you can email us, chicagomurderlandpod at gmail.com. Then there's also that um, illustrious rate and review at Apple, Apple Podcasts. I don't know if it's a yeah. Fiji Apple or a Gala <laughs> Apple. I don't do Apple, but you might do Apple. And so first off, I think it's important that you go to Apple and you rate and review us. Give us four stars, please. Yeah, maybe even 4.25, uh, seven. Silver or gold stars? Uh, Gold, always. Fudge, yeah. I want gold stars, too. Way more valuable. I want fudgy stars. <laughs> fudgy oh. gold stars. Is there such a thing? Please no. do that. We need you. We need you to do that. And here's why. Murder neighborhoodies, we love you. And when I say love, I mean love. And when I say you, I mean you and you and you and you and you and even you. That one who's over there going, she doesn't really. Yes. Alias. Alias. We love Alias. But most especially my Southwest side Jen. Yeah, whatever. Whatever. South. And back at you. Love you, Northside Katie. I love you more. I doubt that, but okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay.